You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Which pet's address is the finest in Paris? Which pets possess the longest pedigree? Which pets get to sleep on velvet mats? Naturellement, the aristocats. Which pets are blessed with the fairest forms and faces? Which pets know best all the gentle social graces? Which pets live on cream and loving pats? Naturellement, the aristocats. They show aristocratic bearing when they're seen upon an airing. An aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say. Aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh, no. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order, where we do our best to play our part in a healthy ecosystem of art and criticism and fandom, putting things into dialogue with one another and hopefully enriching the experience of these animated films. We're interested in how these movies move us and shape our imaginations. Today we're discussing the 20th film in the canon, 1970's The Aristocats. It's kind of an amalgamation of the past three films. Uh, There's the zero plot of Sword in the Stone, the modern look, uh, and animals getting home um, from 101 Dalmatians, and then the big personalities meeting in in weird places and adventures of Jungle Book. Um, With me today, as always, is the only cat of his kind, King of the Highway, Prince of the Boulevard, Duke of the Avant-Garde, the world is his backyard, and he sips the cup of life with his fingers curled. Uh, it's Michael Farmer. Hey, Michael. How you doing, Josh? <laughs> I, I never know how to respond to these things. I know. <laughs> it's just kind of fun to throw them out there. Yes, that describes me exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. I mean, yeah. We should have like a, well, if we had a a more active fan base, we could have like an online poll of, of which of these descriptions actually best fits you. Or maybe maybe somebody can get that started. So, yeah. What do you think about this movie? Uh, I did not like it. <laughs> I'll, I'll lay that out there. I I probably I, I told Victoria <laughs> last night it was the worst one we've seen so far. But then I must have been forgetting about Sword in the Stone because it's not as bad as Sword in the Stone because it has Phil Harris and nothing nothing with Phil Harris can ever be completely bad, right? Yeah. But yeah, uh, I guess so. Yeah, I do not like this movie. No, I did not see it when I was a kid. I've seen it one other time, and it was like 2007, so I was in my 20s. Yeah. So I have no no particular friendly memories of this movie. Uh, right. I, I approach it entirely as an adult, and uh, no, I do not like it. Do you like it? Yeah. Uh, I actually I, I would say that I like Sword in the Stone better than this one. Um, I think this one is so. There's there's some there's a little bit of charm to this one, but to me the absurdity of the plot is just I mean for what plot there is is just too much. Like the the premise, um, which is that um, there's this duchess or no not a duchess sorry that's the name of the cat. There's a uh, what is she the mad- madame? <laughs> she's like a, a former opera singer. Yeah, she's a, she's a wealthy alone you know elderly alone opera singer who has decided that she's going to leave her fortune to her cats and then after that the butler Edgar will get it and the butler can't uh, stand this thought and so he decides that he's going to off the cats so that he gets the money immediately which 
even in this world of cats playing musical instruments and stuff, just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense that he would off them or that she would leave the money to them. Uh, both, right? Like, well, I, I mean, he's going to be executed. If, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, I thought about do, that too. Like, it, leaving the money to the cats is de facto leaving it to him, right? Yeah, right. Because what are they going to do with it? You know, like they're going to buy more paint supplies or whatever. <laughs> like, like he'll be he'll be feeding them. I assume he feeds them in the movie. I mean, he'll still be. I don't know. It's it's just yeah. It's too big a too big a uh, a leap of the imagination for me, I guess. But there is some charm in this movie, so I won't completely downplay it. But, no, no, it um, it is not as bad as it could be. Yeah, and actually, I think part of the issue is um so we talked about a couple episodes ago um the fact that the 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 amount of things that the disney company is producing at this time like the animation the features are such a small part of it right like they've got the television stuff going on and they've got you know the, a whole stream of, of live action movies and most of them as we mentioned at the time are, are largely forgettable like we don't remember most of that stuff that that came out in these in these you know, 60s, 70s decades. And this one actually started as a as a show that they were going to air on The Wonderful World of Disney. And I think it a was going to be live right? action. And they were, what's that? A two-part uh, special. So it's going to be a full-length movie split over two episodes of Wonderful World of Disney. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think focused more on the, um, the human characters of a maid and a butler and their adventures with these cats. And it got rejected as that. And then um, it may have been Disney himself. Uh, yeah, I think this is the last movie that he approved. Um, he didn't work on it at all. Um, who, who decided that it would work better as an animated feature, but you can kind of see that like that. It was, um, it was more in that sort of throwaway genre. <laughs> I think. Originally. The the thing that struck me is how clearly this movie does not have a source material. Yeah. Uh, and and because it doesn't have a source material, the Disney story department is forced to kind of come up with a plot on it on their own, and what you get is just a bunch of bull crap thrown together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. So I will say for it though, like so friend of the show, Jason, who's been watching through these with us, like he watched it a bunch as a kid and he said that he was actually going to skip this one because uh from what he remembered as a kid it was just horrible. But then he decided, oh, I've watched everything else, like I'll go with it. And he, he actually said on, on viewing it as an adult and watching it with his kids and how much his kids laughed through it, um, he could actually get a greater enjoyment out of it. So and I feel kind of the same. Like my kids really like this movie. Um and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about like there there is some there's some good comedy bits in it and the the um the songs I think are really great so um it's not it's not completely without its you know it's not I, I think it's not as bad as the package films in other words <laughs> I, and and see I think I think it is I think it's worse than the package films I, I, the package films at least are trying to do some interesting things sometimes I I just don't I don't think this movie has any ambition whatsoever. Uh, Victoria, worth pointing out, really loved it when she was a kid too. She told her parents she wanted to be Marie when she grew up. Yeah, Marie, the, Marie <laughs> the kitten. Right. Everybody wants to be a cat, right? I guess so. that's true. Yeah, she can she can testify to that. <laughs> but when we watched it last night, she said that it was not as good as she remembered it being. So even there, even even someone with with positive memories of it. What parts do your kids like? Um. So they, I mean, they do like the 
Well, first of all, they just like the fact that it stars cats. I mean, the, the everybody wants to be a cat is definitely true for my kids. They love um, pretending to be cats. They they uh, you know they 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 walk around the house cat. <laughs> Sorry, oh man, I'm having a hard time tonight. Even they, your house wants around. to be a cat. Yes, yeah, they walk around my apartment pretending to be cats, um, jumping on the furniture and scratching each other and this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, so that that part. Like just the fact that it stars cats, I think, is a major win. But then they they enjoy the, um, you know, they enjoy the the adventures of Edgar being chased by uh, the dogs Lafayette and and um, Napoleon, and um, they they like the song, you know, with the scat cat and his gang. They they like that bit. So I am gonna say something, and I'll let you tell me if it's uh, if it's going too far. But that scene with the dogs chasing Edgar on the motorbike is the worst sequence in any <laughs> non-packaged film we've seen so far. That is that is bleak. That is uh, that is Johnny Fedora level bad. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you brought in Johnny Fedora. Did you notice that the uh, the horse is wearing a, a similar hat to the Johnny Fedora with the with the ear holes cut out? That must have been a thing people true, did. True, Yeah, it must have been. But yes, um, let me see if I can think of a worse sequence because I would like to to argue with you on it. But you're right. It is well. It's just it's not. What is it? It is. It's a uh, a very bizarre sort of humor to it. I guess it's very cartoonish. It, it 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 feels it feels not even like a Warner Brothers cartoon. It feels like a Hanna Barbera cartoon. It feels cheaply put together and unimaginable, unimaginative, and just very very broad. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing yeah. to do with the plot of the movie. So <laughs> you, it's this like seven minute detour into Yogi Bear territory. Yeah. Well, and they do it twice, right? They right. do it in the initial um, when he's when he's trying to go, and I don't know what his plan is with the cats. Just drop them in the wild somewhere, maybe. Victoria um, says he's going to drown them. Okay, maybe. Yeah, it's hard hard to say, I guess. Um, how heartless is he? Um, but then, uh, but then he has to go back and retrieve his stuff, and so. Is that is that the one you're talking about when he's retrieving it? Or no, talking I'm talking about, about the you know, first one, the initial sequences. one, where, where they chase him upside down through the under underneath the bridge. Yeah, I'm so annoyed. The bridge. <laughs> and and it, maybe it's a stupid thing to complain about, but I feel like for the most part, these movies have kept a kind of connection to reality that this movie is happy to jettison when when they need a cheap cartoon gag, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing to complain about, but. I think it's I think it's a really fair point because it's it's uh it's part of what so we've seen a streak here right or a, a continuum I guess of you know Disney at first going for ultra realism within a fairy tale sense you know but like you know we saw the you know how close he was trying to get to um you know things being very real and having a um you know I go back to Pinocchio and the idea that you know the um what's the whale's name monstro is that right yeah monstro yeah monster the whale is like off screen and coming into the screen so there's this idea that the world exists beyond the screen right or you get um in bambi where they spent so much time trying to accurately portray you know what and how animals actually move and um yeah and then you know and then we saw the swing kind of away from it um 
a, a little a softer touch, a little more romanticized um, sort of thing. But still, I think what you're saying is is there was a uh, a, a weight to it of some sort, you know, like there there it's inviting you to to partake in the world, right? Like to to accept the world on its terms. Um, whereas this one doesn't doesn't seem to try and even do that. It's just the the rules that you couldn't you couldn't drop rules for this universe. The, right. The, they don't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, it's uh, yeah that that sequence in particular just really really frustrated me, and it it pains me to say that because Pat Buttram is playing the Bloodhound Napoleon. Is that his name? And I mean, do you know how hard yeah. it is to hate something that Pat Buttram is in? <laughs> yeah, Pat Buttram for our listeners who don't know, probably best known as the. Uh, the sheriff from the sheriff of Notting- the sheriff of Nottingham in uh, in Disney's Robin Hood. He has a very distinctive kind of croaky voice. Yeah, yeah. It's these two back together again. Because uh, do you know the guy who plays Lafayette? George Goober Lindsay Goober from okay. uh, from the Andy Griffith Show. Okay. Yeah, and he he does one of the vultures, right? Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Nutsy, maybe. Yeah. So so they'll they'll we'll see them again. Um, in a much much better role. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, this it, it really is. It's like they they. I, I hadn't thought about it this way till you said it at the beginning. It is like they picked up the pieces from the last three or four movies and just kind of hastily assembled them. Yeah. Um. And not yeah. And it, it just it didn't come together. Um. And yeah, I think what you're saying, like that that scene, it can be funny on its own. I mean, my kids laugh at it, but it, it feels out of place in the in the movie. Um, you know, if it was a short or something like that, maybe it would be different. Um, maybe it would feel different. Maybe it'd be funnier. But within the movie, um, it, you expect some sort of, um, I don't know, you expect things to hold together a little better. I think in a movie, there's yeah. a higher standard. Yeah. I do like the fact that he can. Uh, the 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 one really good gag in there is you know the first time he's he's um, describing the motorcycle perfectly you know like he understands like the you know it's a two cylinder and there's a there's you know squeaky wheel it seems to be the one in the front and that sets up the later gag where he's listening to uh, the shoes squeak and he's naming the type of shoes and says you know hole hole in the left sole i think or something like that which is it, it's pretty funny and then um but then the, the really good gag is when lafayette says what color are they <laughs> and he says now how am i supposed to know that and i just i just i that one gets me every time i think it's really funny he can tell you everything about it he says what color are they <laughs> it's a long it's a long setup for for a short punchline though <laughs> yeah well and it, it just comes at the end of so much when they came back on screen at that point in the movie i was i was dreading it <laughs> yeah i wonder if the movie was just too short and that's why they decided to add those characters or yeah if yeah go ahead oh go no you go yeah um wh- whether it was short or just they wanted to get this particular form of humor in because there's something very it takes you out of the movie not just because it's more cartoonish but because it has shifted to this weirdo like hillbilly humor that was very current at the time so they're making this movie in the late 60s if you think about what's on television at that time you've got like green acres beverly hillbillies mr ed hee-haw there's lots of kind of rural humor and and that's these guys are straight out of those shows 
So I, I think I think that's what they're that's what they're doing. It would be a little bit. I, I I'm kind of disconnected from whatever's going on in sitcoms now, but it, it is a little bit like casting Eddie Murphy in uh, in Shrek. I think it's taking it's taking somebody who something. Uh, if not somebody, something that would have been well known to the audience in a different context, and just kind of implanting it in the movie. Yeah, which I mean, to be fair, they did the same in Jungle Book, but it, it just worked much better in Jungle Book, right? Jungle Book doesn't Jungle Book seem timeless in a way that the the hillbilly stuff here seems dated, and maybe it's just that the, those hillbilly shows got out of fashion very very quickly. Yeah, maybe maybe you're right. Like maybe that's all it is, but you're right that. I mean, Jung- well, Jungle Book's just a much better movie. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I think, so being a better movie, um, you know, it's hard to, there's there's a chicken and egg type problem there, which came first, you know? Like, does it feel timeless because we've all decided it's a classic, and so therefore it's timeless, or is it a classic because it's timeless? Well, you brought uh-huh. this up last week, or last month, that the... The, the way the Jungle Book works is it's completely character-driven. Walt told them not to worry about the plot and just do, do the characters. And it, and it works because the characters are really strongly drawn and uh, and f- fleshed out is not exactly the right word, but they, they feel real. Um, here, the characters are just nothing. These two characters are nothing. I, I mean, N- Napoleon's, Napoleon's one characteristic is that he is a hillbilly dog and he thinks he's in charge. Do you, yeah. you know what I mean? He's not he's not a rounded character the way even the Sheriff of Nottingham is. Uh, just to make it clear that I'm not blaming Pat Buttram for this. This is a writing problem. Right. And I think you're what you said earlier about, you know, all I think it's not only these scenes. Like I feel like every scene feels kind of stretched. Like the pacing of this movie is quite strange. They don't I think you're right. Like they just didn't have enough to to put together or um, just the story was so weak, and and you're absolutely right. Like none of these characters are as strong as um, anything in the Jungle Book. You know, Even yeah. The vultures are more who I, I take to be the weakest characters in the Jungle Book are are stronger than any character here, including the Phil Harris character. Yep. <clears throat> so. Because even Thomas O'Malley Cat, I mean, what what exactly is his thing? It seems like he's going to be a rogue with a heart of gold, but he gets to the heart of gold within forty five seconds of being on the screen. Like like he he doesn't really play up the Alley Cat thing that much. Yeah, because I, yeah, I had I mean, assumed it... I had assumed that what we were going to get was a slobs versus snobs kind of thing, right? Where where these uh, high class cats run into this Alley Cat and they hate him, but he helps them, and then they gradually fall in love. A kind of it happened one night. Um, plot which I, I this movie owes quite a bit to it happened one night um but you don't really get that like he almost immediately falls in love with the kittens and decides to help i mean there's no there's really no unwillingness in it it's like they were too afraid to make him dangerous yeah it's his, it's his first conversation basically i mean as soon as they start to leave he says you're not a cat you're a rat and then he decides to you know decides to help so right it just it just doesn't it gets there too quickly and then because it gets there so quickly there's nothing there's no tension to hold for the rest of the movie they they just end up getting into these physical scrapes so they jump out of the way of the train oh but marie has fallen in the river so he's going to go save her and then oh he's going to drown but the geese are going to save him it it all feels i don't know it 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 doesn't feel like a plot. It just feels like a series of incidents that they put in to get the movie up to 80 minutes or however long it is. 
I think that's a <laughs> that's an extremely fair critique of this movie. I don't I don't, I mean there's there's nothing else to really say about it on on that front, you know? Like it's just um it is Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> All the good is in spite of everything that you just said, right? Like Right, and so, there are some good things. It's not it's not that this movie is we are going to see worse movies than this. Um but we I don't know that we've seen one so far. Yeah, and I I think I I think what you just said too, or what you said a couple minutes ago about the ambition of the movie. I'm wondering when we see the worst movies, if that if we'll have that same critique, you know, like um, was it that the ambition was so low and that ended in a low grade movie, or like are we gonna see some where they they uh, you know they swung for the fences and just missed? That, that's that's my curiosity. Have you ever read um, Nathan Rabin? He has he had a series he did a few years ago called My Year of Flops where he watched um, historically unperforming movies. No, I, I'm not familiar with this. It, it's an interesting concept, and he he rates them on the scale of failure, flop, or failure, fiasco, secret success, right? And the difference between a failure and a fiasco, he gets this from a movie that is itself a fiasco, uh, Cameron Crowe's Elizabeth Town. The difference between a failure and a fiasco is a fiasco is, as you say, just swings for the fences and fails miserably. So it's it's like world historical, you know. It has this import to it, and that's what makes it so bad. Um, this is not a fiasco. There, there's no... I, I don't see any real effort put into anything here, except maybe some of the songs. Uh, they, they just seem tired. Which is funny, because they hadn't done a movie in three years, two years. I mean, it's not like it's not like they put this out eight months after the Jungle Book. Yeah, and th- this is this is an era where my um, my knowledge of the Disney, like what's happening within the Disney company, is kind of weak, and I didn't I didn't have a lot of good source material uh, this month, so I I don't know what the feel was within the studio um, after Disney's death. You know, um, I know that there was there was always kind of threats of of shuttering the animation department um in even in even Disney's final years and that there was there was a bit of him that kept it alive because it was you know like he had a a nostalgia for it or something um but yeah I wonder I wonder what the tone in the studio was you know with his passing and um with Disney moving it more and more as I said, into television, into you know the theme parks, which we've we've talked about on our show already in the past. Um, and worth pointing and maybe, out, Disney World opens the year after this movie comes out, so I, I, yeah. there must have been a lot of studio energy going toward that. Yeah, so I, I wonder where the morale of the studio was, and I also, I mean, because there's, um, yeah, the, I mean, you've got some of the same animators working on this stuff, so um, you know, at least on that end. It's it's not horrible. Um, oh, it's, it's pretty not... bad though. The animation here is worse than the other Xerox pictures. Even how, look at how liney Madame is, and and yeah, the, the so, lawyer too, George. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's yeah. So I think the the cleanup on it is definitely not at the level that we've seen in the past. And I'm wondering if that's. I think a bit of that is actually the animators gaining a little more authority. Like they want their original drawings on the screen post the, you know, um, post 101 Dalmatians. Um, it's kind of like, don't, don't mess with my stuff. But then the, the product does look very, 
very liney. But I, I guess I meant more in like, yeah, look at the lawyer. Like he's, you know, he's fun. Like he's got, you know, an, an interesting gait to him. And he, he, uh, you know, he, he does that dance and like, um, you know, when he's dancing, like his, his knees wobble, you know, and, uh, he, he uses his cane to help himself stand up and, and sit down. Like there's, there's some, there's still some, uh, good acting work i guess if you want to call it that from the animators that's true going yeah. on there's some complexity um, to the to the character in the animation yeah but i agree that the uh yeah the, the way the look of it is getting <laughs> i guess closer I, I, don't, I don't know it's it's closer to the to the artist's pencil which is is nice in a way but it it, it definitely doesn't look as beautiful as <laughs> i mean we're a long way from sleeping beauty which i think we've said a few times yeah, and again, just to reiterate, we're 11 years from Sleeping Beauty. I mean, it's not even that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know who took over the studio? Who who filled Walt's role after he after he passed? I actually don't. I know that um so I noticed on this one that uh oh, I always forget his name. Wooly uh Reitherman. Reith- Reitherman, yeah, that's right. He got he got a producer credit and a director credit on this one. So I know as far as like, and he's he's I think he has that producer and director credit on the next on the next few. Like I know it's he's he's basically the head honcho on that end. But I don't know um, what's going on on the studio side. Um, like I said, my my history of the Disney company is is weaker on this point. It's it's really interesting because again I think the uninformed position on this is oh well of course this movie's bad because it's the first one made without Disney supervising it but as we've discussed for for the last fifteen years at least Disney's supervision of these movies has been uh, not in especially intense right he he he's he's kind of a, a rubber stamp in a lot of cases and yet when he dies it's true the the movies really do get demonstrably worse. Yeah, that is a weird. It is a weird thing. It's like he was still the heart of it. Well, I and I think, I think they were still working so hard to impress him. Yeah, I, mean, I was about I, I to really say that. There was, there was a weird dynamic there of him as a, um, you know, especially with kind of the the people who are still in the lead roles of the animation, the kind of classic Disney's nine old men as they're called. Um, you know, they they came up with walt himself you know they've been at the studio since the 40s at this point they've been there for 30 years and like there's a i don't know there's a there's this weird dynamic where they they really loved him and wanted to impress him you know i mean there's a when we were doing the jungle book and i was watching the bonus features ken anderson who does who's still doing character design and stuff on this movie like Disney hated what he did on that movie and it it just you can tell in the interview that he's this interview is from I don't know late 80s early 90s like he's still hurt by it that he upset Walt you know like it's crazy yeah that that cult of personality but th- then then you get the cult of personality and and he the the personality dies and what are you left with and then on on top of everything else these guys lost their friend you know I mean this was a person who was important to them personally as well so I mean maybe we should lay off on them for having visible depression in this movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But the, the movie does feel kind of hollow. It's like somebody doing a tap dance at a funeral or something. It, 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 there's no there's no real joy in it. Yeah. And I wonder about that, though. Um, is there a counterexample of somebody 
dying and then you know what comes out of it is you know like they you know like i mean you, i I'm, I'm thinking of like a sports analogy where it's like you know win one for the gipper win, <laughs> win one for the gipper <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't know like is there i don't know i can't think of one off the top of my head where like a good counter example what happened like, at the, Apple after Steve Jobs died? Because I think probably Steve Jobs had a, a similar position at Apple that Disney did at Disney. Mm. In, in the sense that he wasn't really the driving creative force, but he was kind of the figurehead. And, I mean, let's hope Disney wasn't as big of a jerk as Steve Jobs was. But I, I, it, it seems to me that Apple also kind of went through a dip right after Jobs' death. Everything seemed kind of uninspired. Yeah, I I know that's the the classic narrative on it, and I I think it's in some ways it's still too early with tell. I mean, I know Jobs has been dead for gosh, how long now? Eight years. I don't remember. Yeah, so maybe it's maybe it's getting past the point where it's too early to tell. But I think that was definitely I've seen both sides of that argument. You know, like I've seen the narrative, which I think a lot of people just wanted to latch onto. Honestly, like it's sure. it's a it's it's the same as what you just said with Disney. Like it's kind of the the accepted narrative because it makes sense, right? Like the visionary dies and everything dips. Right, and we um, and we like that great man theory of history because it makes us it makes us number one feel like we could be great men, but also when when the things we do don't succeed, we can just say, oh well, I'm not Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm definitely not Walt Disney. So, <laughs> but the, but there's a gap here, right? I mean, it's it's not just that this is a bad movie; it's that it's it doesn't feel like a Disney movie. Yeah, or or it feels oh. like it feels like a Disney movie hastily assembled by somebody outside of Disney, right? Disney. The only cover. thing that, yeah, the things that make it feel like a Disney movie are are the 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 voices because they get repeated. I mean, they've been repeated in this movie from the Jungle Book, and they're going to be repeated again in um, uh, Robin Hood, and you know who else knows where you know so it kind of it still fits and then the music especially like they're going to use reuse almost all the the score not the the songs but like the score they're going to reuse like all this stuff in robin hood so i think in that way it like kind of feels of a piece of all those other movies but you're right as far as um what we were talking about earlier like inviting you into a into an imaginative world that is cohesive it, it doesn't it doesn't fit that at all one interesting thing is that this is not how people at the time received this movie at all. It was a big hit. People loved it. It was the number one grossing movie in the UK that year. It was the number one or two movie, grossing movie in France. It is still, believe it or not, the according to Wikipedia, the 18th highest grossing movie in French history. Are you serious? Yeah. So this was this was a big hit. I mean, it was seen as a triumph, and and it's so interesting to look back and it may, maybe they just had lower expectations than we did. You know, 1970s are not a time known for uh, its optimism. Maybe maybe everybody was just so depressed. But it's 1970. It, it it shouldn't have gotten fully into that malaise yet. I I don't know, but people at that's the time wild. people at the time really liked this movie. Yeah, that's that's kind of unbelievable. I mean, that makes me think a little bit of like the package films when they were doing these, you know, they were trying to, you know, get people in Brazil to, you know, to feel like this national affinity for it and then to, you know, to popularize it that way. <laughs> like, you know, it's set in Paris. All of a sudden, like everybody, you know, like there's that uh 
maybe there's that aspect working for it. I don't know. That's that's crazy. Yeah, I, I wondered that too. Especially since, other than the setting, and there's some. I, I will say the best thing about this movie is uh, when when Edgar first kidnaps the cats and takes them out into the night. There's this beautiful impressionist background of the of the Parisian streets, and that that's the best piece of. It's not really animation, but it's the best piece of, piece of art in this movie. Um, but other than the setting, does this movie feel terribly French to you? Nobody even has a French accent. Yeah, no, that's really true. Um, yeah, because we were already talking about like the hillbilly dogs, and then they meet the English geese. Um, yeah, Edgar has not, an English it's... accent. Madam has an English accent. All the kids have American accents. Uh, Ava Gabor, who plays Duchess, has a Hungarian accent. There's nobody in this movie with a French <laughs> accent. Yeah, maybe that's what France France was like in the 1900s. I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah. what they were like in the 1920s after all their people died in World War uh, World War One. Oh man, that's dark, Michael. Um, the movie's set in 1910, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. That that night scene. I mean, all those night scenes of of Paris are, are wonderful. I it's, think it's really I great. think it's a, a visual reference to. Uh, I think the painting is called The Night Cafe by Vincent Van Gogh. Mm, maybe so. I didn't catch that, but that that would make sense. I think that's right. Maybe I'm making that up. Yeah. The, I think overall the backgrounds on this are nice. Um, the is, I mean, Particularly that. That's definitely the highlight of the movie is, is the, that night, night scene. Um, when the highlight of a movie is the background, it's not a great sign. <laughs> I'm, I'm nothing against backgrounds, but we're going to get to this again when we get to Brother Bear, which has the most beautiful background art in the world and is a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Yeah, but um, the the other backgrounds, other than that, are pretty much in uh, 101 Dalmatians mode. They yeah, kind they of, really are. But it works well. I mean, nothing wrong with that. We liked we liked the animation in 101 Dalmatians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the colors I was noti- noticing are kind of, you know, um, very reminiscent of 101 Dalmatians. And I was trying to figure out who the color artist on this was, because I know that um, uh, Walt Paragoy, who did it for 101 Dalmatians, had left, um, had to, you know, had stopped working on the movies by this point. So I don't know who did it, but I, I think it was definitely influenced by by him. You know, I, I think they were definitely trying to recapture that style. It's fu- it's much harder to find information about this movie. Didn't you find that 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 all the other ones yeah. have all these bonus features and people writing about them, but this is kind of a forgotten movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, except except for the music. So right. maybe we should maybe we should jump to the music because yeah. Go ahead. So so the 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 big uh, the big attraction is everybody wants to be a cat, sung by Scatman Crothers. Yeah. Which I, I gotta say for the Sherman Brothers that this is the second movie in a row where the big hit was not one of their <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they, they wrote the they wrote the two small songs, the um, scales and arpeggios, which is good. And I can't yeah, remember the other good. song. Oh, the the, the think, title song, the Aristocats. Yeah, the title. Yeah, by Maurice Chevalier. Yeah, which is also very good. Which I, yeah, they're good. They are good songs. Yeah. That title good. that title song is probably the most French this movie ever gets. Yeah, they've got a they've got a whole verse in French, in French, don't they? Yeah, and it was not you know my French I can read it, but I I can't hear it especially when it's sung. Um, and they the closed captioning didn't provide it on on my DVD, so I don't know what it was saying. Something about hats. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was just a repeat of the English in French or if they were giving 
giving new new uh maybe that's why this movie is so popular in france maybe there's something incredible in that song <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if it was just the whole verse was just bad mouthing the united states like we we wanted to set this movie in new york but the americans are foolish boorish pigs where else could this take place but france long live charles de gaulle i think he was dead by this time that'd be really funny <laughs> Uh, so, so everybody wants to be a cat. Did, did you know this song separate from the movie? Because this is not a song I grew up with. Because I didn't grow up with the movie. Uh, I don't. I I think I only know it from this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts so, about it? I mean, I, I like well, it. I, it's it's definitely catchy. Um, definitely on uh, Twitter, our friend uh, Jay Eldred, friend of the show, said uh, it's it's the catchiest and truest of all the Disney songs. <laughs> Which is a, a narrow category, I think. Catchiest <laughs> and truest. <laughs> I was trying to I was trying to think if he was wrong or not. Um, I always think these things are more interesting if we can actually fight about it, but I'm not sure if there's a Everybody does not want to be a cat. <laughs> yeah. So the song is fallacious. <laughs> yeah, the dogs definitely don't want to at the end, but you know, all the other animals sing it. So something going there so horse the horse sings it the geese sing it so the scat scat cat was supposed to be played by lewis armstrong but he got sick at the last minute so they had to bring in Scatman Crothers, probably best known if not for this who i'm about to say this and i'm not sure it's true anymore is he the uh is he the caretaker from the shining I have no idea. I think that's I right. I think I'm not making that up. And if I am, man, do I feel like a racist. But I'm pretty sure that's Scatman Crothers. So it's funny that his two best-known roles are Scat Cat, the hipster uh, sax-playing cat, and uh, the, the caretaker from The Shining, best known for getting a, spoiler alert, an axe in his back. Yeah. I've never, I, I've never watched The Shining. It's too, I, I tend to stay away from the... Scary ones. That's the scariest movie <laughs> so. I've ever seen. We should uh, we should do after we're done with the, the the Disney movies. We should just start watching all the Stanley Kubrick movies without changing the title of the show or just keep putting <laughs> it on this feed. Oh man, yeah. Uh, I uh, think if we're talking about the song, at some point we're probably going to have to talk about China Cat, <laughs> right? Who, oh, who somehow manages so, to be more offensive than the uh, the Siamese cats from Lady and the Tramp, to whom he clearly has a debt. Right. Super, super offensive. Um, but the thing that got me was they kept cutting to him for reactions, so that he could he could say uh, he could he could say L's instead of R's and vice versa. Yeah, he's. Yeah, so the whole band <laughs> is made up of of different ethnic stereotypes. So there's there's trouble right away, and it's not exactly in the, uh, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit during Lady and the Tramp, where the the dogs are all ethnic stereotypes, but they're also related to like where the breed of the dog were from. I don't think that's the case with these cats. I don't think they put that level of research into it. Um, but yeah, he really sticks out. But it was interesting, you know, like thinking about where. I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending it. Like, <laughs> so just to make that clear from the beginning, like, this is, it's, it's horrible. So I'm, I'm definitely not defending it. It's interesting to think about where ch- the U.S.-China relations were at the time. So, um, and like, what people even would have been thinking about China, because this is a couple years before um, 
you know, Nixon famously visits um, in 72. Um, I think the first American to get to into China post the communist takeover in 40, 45. Is that right? I don't remember. Um, is is a ping pong player. There's the famous like ping pong diplomacy thing um, that I think is that in Forrest Gump that that pops up as well. Yeah, that's in Forrest the Gump. Ping- yeah, the ping pong diplomacy. Um, that's this. I mean, the year of this movie, 1970. So they're definitely China's on the radar in a way. Like they're trying to normalize relations with them, but they're also, I think, extremely, like an extremely unknown quantity. So it's interesting that they show up here at all. But there's also a Russian cat, and uh, you know, the, the, we're still in the heart of the Cold War. Actually, the Part of the reason why China is coming back on, like, should we normalize relations with China is because the USSR is getting more and more scary. So, I don't know. This is obviously not a political podcast, and my my knowledge of this whole time period is not great. But I, I just think it's interesting um, to think about, like, why you know why why a Chinese cat? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Other than other than it's a it's a, a cheap visual gag they can do with the the stereotypical Chinese face on a Siamese cat. It's it's interesting. That you you talk about Chinese American relationships relations at that point are moving toward this rapprochement because that scene really feels like it's out of the forties. I, I mean it 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 must have felt dated even in nineteen seventy because yeah. I'm not sure this is a thing where you can say oh well you know that that's just the popular presentation of Asians at that time. I don't know that it was. It was the popular presentation of the a- Asians in nineteen forty three. But that was 27 years before this movie came out. I, 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 it's it's baffling. Yeah, and that, I mean, and that's yeah, I agree with you. That it's a, a, a cheap gag, you know. But like, why is it work? Work is probably the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Like, why? Why'd you laugh why so hard it, at it? Is that what you're saying? No, I, I don't. <laughs> laugh at it. But why? Why would people recognize it as a cheap gag? You know, like what's in the what's kind of in the the broader atmosphere that? Because you can say it's a cheap gag, but it, it's only cheap because people would recognize it, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know, but man, of all the unpleasant racial stuff we've looked at, and we've looked at a fair bit of it, um, this is by far the most uncomfortable. I mean, way more uncomfortable than the Siamese cats and and Lady and the Tramp. Yeah. Because this guy's supposed to be a good guy, right? I mean, I I don't know. Unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> it's terribly unpleasant. I, I, yeah, I mean, maybe the Italian and Russian cats and the the British hippie are are just as broadly drawn, and it's just that those are not groups that we now identify as being under assault. You, you know, we don't we don't really identify those groups as being minorities, and may, maybe that's the difference. But he certainly feels worse to me than the Italian cat, and the the Russian cat barely seems like a stereotype at all, except he has a Russian accent. Yeah, what's his name? Boss Blue or something like that. He has a he has a he has a funny name. <laughs> I'm impressed that you learned the names of the, <laughs> the cat cats. I can't even keep the names of the kittens straight. Like I'm always like, Berlioz is the black one, Marie is the white one, and uh, Toulouse is the orange one. Yeah, Berlioz is well, such that... a great cat name. Yeah. Does it mean anything? Do you know? Yeah, uh, Hector Berlioz was a French composer from the 19th century. Okay. Probably best known for the Symphonie Fantastique. So, yeah. see if I if I was more cultured, I would catch these things. Very, very appropriate. And he's the he's the one who plays the piano. Yeah. 
Which is great. So Scales and Arpeggios, another great song. They do. I, I think I think it's really, it's, it's catchy. It's funny. You know, there's some good gags in it. They do, they do a nice job. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I, I don't have much bad to say about the music. Yeah, the song, the songs are all, are all good. The problem is they can't prop up this movie. <laughs> oh, we haven't talked about Thomas O'Malley Cat, which is, I think is the weakest of the songs. Yeah. <clears throat> it, again, feels very much like the sort of song Phil Harris would have performed in the 40s. Like, this this is very on-brand for him. Uh, I, I just, I don't find it particularly catchy. And, of course, unlike all these other ones, it doesn't really have a whole lot of application outside of the movie itself. Do you know? Do you yeah, know what I mean? It, you can't go around singing it because you're not Thomas O'Malley Cat, whereas you could sing all these other ones. Right. Yeah. It, it felt like a, maybe an, an attempt at something similar to Bare Necessities, um, but definitely, definitely a miss. Yeah, certainly a step down from Bare Necessities. But what is it? I mean, Bare Necessities is one of the greatest uh, showtunes ever written. Right. Um, yeah. It's. It's super. It's a, this is definitely not that. So it's a, it's a similar only in that it's kind of an introduction to the character, but other than that, it doesn't and well, and it's sung by Phil Harris. <laughs> yeah. Did you um did you think the character design on Thomas O'Malley is bad? He, he his neck was so thick to me that he looked like a cougar rather than a domestic cat right yeah oh man i had a i actually had a quote about that on in somewhere and i think i i lost it but it was funny the um the 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 guy who designed him and the guy who animated him were slight were, were different guys and i wish i wish i had this in front of me but i'll i'll look it up and put it on the website someday maybe um <laughs> i never update our our show notes these days but I, I have good intentions to eventually do it anyway the guy who designed him designed him to be pretty a pretty thick cat and then the guy who animated him kept animating him skinny and and the the guy who designed him didn't like that and he actually the guy who designed him actually went on vacation to europe uh, during the, the movie and he was sending back postcards like every day telling the animator to make sure that he wasn't drawing the cat too skinny that's funny i think is great and then the animator yeah. did no i guess he didn't because they... well he he eventually thickened it up but maybe yeah maybe in the wrong places like maybe it just his yeah you're right his neck is is pretty thick he looks like a different so. species than the other cats I, I i didn't i didn't like that animation yeah so the character design on the other cats is pretty cute. I mean the the kittens are all terminally cute. Oh yeah, they're I, they definitely they're adorable. They make this movie in a lot of ways, you know, like for what for what there is to make of the movie. Like would it would it be so popular if it wasn't about three kittens and then like not a chance, right? Well, the so. thing that struck me in comparison to 101 Dalmatians is is how little that movie was about the children. Versus mm-hmm. how much this movie is. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a broad, um, you know, a broad animals trying to get back to their owners in both. But beyond that, they're they're quite different. Do you have more to say about that? Uh, no, except uh, again, I think that movie that movie is much better. It, it has it has a point to it. I think all these dogs acting heroically. 
there's not really much heroism here because there's not much room for heroism because the plot's not thought out well enough for there to be. So in, instead of that, instead of instead of leaning on, I, I'm just thinking about that remarkable scene where the the collie trudges through the snow, uh, and the uh, the Dalmatians are all about to freeze to death, and the collie trudges through the snow to bring them to the the cows. You remember that scene? Mm-hmm. There's nothing yes, like yeah. that here, right? It's just all of this is a is a excuse for the kittens to be cute. And I mean, yeah. as far as that goes, they are right, but it it it's a, it's a pretty big letdown after 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple save scenes in here. Um, there's the the cl- <laughs> the classic Disney trope of the little kid falling off the truck, um, <laughs> which we saw in 101 Dalmatians, and we will see again in um, Robin Hood. Um, probably the exact same animation for all three of them too most likely yeah and um but but you're right yeah definitely nothing like the collie scene i'm thinking actually the the exact opposite right like whereas the collie scene is completely noble and heroic um in this scene when when or in this movie when o'malley needs rescued because he's drowning it's played as as a joke you know the the geese the geese make the situation worse you know Although I, I will say that was one of the few scenes in this movie I laughed at. I, I thought the geese were pretty funny. I liked when they when they found out that he and Duchess weren't married. They began to critique his uh, phrenology. His eyes are too close together. He has a criminal brow or whatever. Yeah. So I thought, and, and the scene the scene with drunk Uncle Waldo uh, that was that was hysterical. But you know, a drunk cartoon character is always funny to me. Yeah, that's true. You're the one who like Drunk Dumbo too. Yeah, so. yeah, Drunk Dumbo is funny, but Drunk Uncle Waldo might be even better. Yeah, and then you find out I the just... reason he's drunk is that they were trying to cook him. <laughs> <laughs> right, the... which again doesn't make any sense to me. I would think that you would defeather a, a bird before doing that, but probably you would kill him before you defeathered him too. To be fair. <laughs> I mean, I you know I'm not much of a chef, but I, I think generally you kill the animal first. <laughs> well, drawing us back, actually, it's related in a way as this you know this affiliation between animals and humans. I didn't know if we wanted to talk about that a little bit. Well, I think um, it's the closest thing this movie has to a theme. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, because obviously, uh, there's a there's a deep affection between Madame and Duchess, and Duchess feels it back um she's got the um what i believe meant to be a touching scene where she describes you know she's describing madame all alone and how you know i i forget the exact words i didn't write them down but you know her her love she kind of says it in a in a poetic sort of way you know she always showed her her love for us was always shown and uh we were her greatest treasure and without us she's or with us she's never alone or something like that you know like i, I i'm sure i i botched it pretty good there but um yeah, I was going to pull in a quote, a couple quotes from uh, C.S. Lewis, who obviously also has this idea of, you know, communing with animals. Um, this is from Out of the Silent Planet, where uh, um, in Out of the Silent Planet, Ransom uh, travels from Earth to uh, Mars and meets a variety of. There's there's multiple different. Uh, what symbiotic creatures on on Mars and different species, and when he, the fir, the the ones that he's meeting, he says, um, uh, it, "This is kind of a long quote, sorry, but there." Uh, 
when the rationality of the harass tempted you to think of it as a man, then it became abominable. A man, seven feet high, with a snaky body, covered face and all with thick black animal hair and whiskered like a cat. But starting from the other end, you had an animal with everything an animal ought to have. Glossy coat, liquid eye, sweet breath, and whitest teeth, and added to all of these, as though paradise had never been lost and earliest dreams were true, the charm of speech and reason. Nothing could be more disgusting than the one impression, nothing more delightful than the other. It all depended on the point of view. And then at the end of the book, he's got a, you know, the, the, um, the, what the, the premise of the story is that this is a true story that happened to Lewis's friend. So he has a, a letter from the true Ransom um, writing to him. And uh, he says, for example, can I make you, can I make even you understand how I know beyond all question why it is that the Malacandrians don't keep pets and in general don't feel about their lower animals as we do about ours? Naturally, it is the sort of thing they themselves could never have told me. One just sees why when one sees the three species together. Each of them is to the other both what a man is to us and what an animal is to us. They can talk to each other. They can cooperate. They have the same ethics. To that extent, a sorn and a hross meet like two men. But then each finds the other different, funny, attractive, as an animal is attractive. Some instinct starved in us which we try to soothe by treating irrational characters almost as if they were rational, is really satisfied in Malacandra. They don't need pets. And so I, I was thinking about this, you know, what he's talking about there, this this deep need in us to, you know, um, to relate to the other. Um, and I know you're not familiar with uh, these C.S. Lewis books. I've actually read the first one, so I know I know that book. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I was thinking more broadly, you know, like just as a theme in in our movies and in our literature and stuff, this this uh, desire to commune with animals. And if there's anything that, that you had to say about that. Well, I, I mean, on the most basic level, um, over and over again in these movies, the, the character who is the most in touch with the animal world is the good character. And the character that's the least in touch with it is the bad world, is the, the, bad, uh, the bad character, right? So... Um, probably most strikingly, uh, Johnny Appleseed, the, the cougars come up and nuzzle him like house cats. Mm -hmm. Uh, we got it with Snow White. We got it with Sleeping Beauty. I mean, it's just over and over and over again. And we get that version of that here, except that the, the relevant animals are not wildlife, but domesticated animals. Um, yeah, I don't know. What What are you thinking? Well, I was just, I mean, I, you're, you're right. Like that there's a... Um, clearly there's a nobleness to getting along with nature in general. Um, but I do think there's something else that Lewis is kind of touching upon there as far as a, you know, a hunger for a, a you know, a pre-fallen world where maybe, um, you know, maybe our lives with the animals would have been different. Um, or, or even a post, you know, like the, the idea of the lion laying down with the lamb and the, you know, the kid, the kid playing in in the midst of the lions and not being harmed and stuff, you know, like this idea that um, I don't know. There's something there's something caught off cut off between us and and uh, the rest of nature at at the moment, and that that we feel that that we have a longing for that, um, and that's part of why we that's that's part of why we have pets, <laughs> I guess. You know, is um, you know to fulfill that need. 
I don't, I don't. Well, and one thing that's interesting here is the lion kind of does lay down with the lamb because the the cats in this movie are not predatory animals. The only thing we ever see them eating is cream. Um, that's right. They hang out with mice. They hang out with geese. These are animals that most cats would attempt to kill, if not eat. Cats kill for fun, so maybe just kill. Oh, that's that, that's a really good point. I, I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking more of the human relationship, you know, of of Madame, you know, elevating the cats to the level of not just property, but but uh, inheritors. Yeah, but which right. which sits but, uneasy with me. I I I. Th- we have people who do that, right? I mean, and and I think in general, Western people, maybe just Americans, I don't know, um, have a really unhealthy, disordered relationship with domestic animals. Uh, right. Um, the oh, yeah. Say more about that. I had had something on the tip of my tongue, but I lost it. So go ahead. I just I, I just think we tend to treat animals like children, which they're not, right? I mean, their children are infinitely valuable, and animals are immediately valuable. I guess is what I would say. Uh, it's not that domestic animals are bad, but when you when you elevate them to the level of human beings, you are you're seeing the world incorrectly. I, it's hard for me not to sympathize with poor Edgar. Uh, he served this insane woman for decades and, and he, he finds out that she appreciates her cats more than she appreciates him that's monstrous she he, he should he should be offended i don't know that he should kill the cats but he, he should be offended um yeah yeah oh there's yeah there's a tolkien quote about this i think in um on fairy stories where he talks about that um and i, I don't have the book here in front of me so i can't i'm not gonna be able to pull it up but but he does talk about how um there's this idea that it, like in uh, what he believes is a wrong idea in like kind of folklore that you know the ancient peoples didn't understand the differences between um, a frog and a and a person and that's you know that's how they came up with these stories like the frog prince and um, the you know it's just it's kind of nonsense um, or or the idea of a centaur or something like that right like that their their idea of of the line between an animal and, and a person was, was more blurred than our modern understanding. And he argues that our modern understanding is actually the, the thing that's blurring the line because we, we view every, we view everything as only animal um, with our, with our scientific process that we actually are the ones who, who um, exactly what you said, like we, we can elevate the, the animal to, and lower the human to, to where they're basically on an equal level and um, create this, you know, create this this idea where, um, you know, save the whale or whatever. He didn't use that term, but you know, like, which whales d- deserve to be saved? But like, when you elevate it to the level of putting it over human needs, um, then it gets a little wonky. Like you said, like you you feel for Edgar when you know she's not looking out for his, you know, what what happens to Edgar after the woman that he served forever dies, but she is con- more concerned about the cats. Right. And so so here's what I would say, and I think this is a fairly C.S. Lewis thing to say. Um, the scientific materialism you're talking about denigrates human life, and then we raise whoever we feel like, humans or animals, back up through this sort of uh, deep sentimentality, uh, as if the depth of our feeling about a, a being is what gave it its value. And so, so of course, the, the the people who drive me crazy, and I mean, our listeners know I don't have children, so I, maybe I'm a hypocrite here. But the the people who are very very proud of not having children, 
and then treat their animals like children. I, I, I find that just utterly monstrous. Because they're because the they're doing what you said, like they're the the sentimentality sentimentality towards the animals, the the amount the amount that I care for this thing elevates it to to such a level as the same as a child. Right, basically. right, which they're not. I, I mean, I, I don't have children. We have animals. Uh, they're, they're not children. They're not like children. They're a completely different, they're a completely different level than, than, uh, than children. Uh, all human beings are intrinsically, irreplaceably valuable, right? Animals <laughs> are not. And we, we have feelings about them, and it's not wrong to have feelings about them. It's not wrong to love them in some way. But it is wrong to love them like they are people. And it's wrong to mm-hmm. love them instead of people, which is, I, I, I just, may, maybe what bothers me about this movie, maybe the reason I couldn't really get into it is that the, the, Madame is just deeply monstrous to me. I mean, she's a nice old lady or whatever. It's not like she's out killing people, but the, the idea that she would leave her vast fortune not to human beings, but to these animals. I, I, and I know, it's a different world, right? Because we, we, we happen to know that the animals have consciousnesses and all this stuff, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just, obje- <laughs> maybe I'm just objecting to anthropomorphism in animals, I, but I don't really object to that. I don't know. No, you don't. because a, I mean, It's a like, personal I'm... hobby horse here. <laughs> I, I I think it's a valuable point. I mean, she's yeah, she's supposed to be the noble one, and I think yeah, looking at it, looking at it from the side of <laughs> if this was if this was in any way real, she'd she'd actually be a monster, right? And people do this, right? I mean, Hemingway I think very famously left his money to his cats. Mm. Yeah. So have you heard of um, uh, toxoplasm or toxoplasmosis? Yeah, this the, is the uh, this is the chemical in or the bacteria in cat feces that makes mice unafraid of cats. Right. Yeah, it's a parasite. Um, yeah. <laughs> so have you have you heard the theory that that the reason cats are so popular is because we are you know like like people have people have caught this and so in the you know in in a rat it it makes a it basically makes the rat believe that you know cat um instead of cats being dreadfully fear there's like an, er- an erotic sort of thing so they're drawn to them so that they get eaten because this virus can only be uh or not virus sorry this parasite can only reproduce in the guts of cats right so the 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 parasite's goal is to to rewire the 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 rat's brain in order to get itself into the gut of a cat so it can reproduce um (laughs) it's just just insane but then uh you know if it gets into a human body then what happens right and and this is very like the the science is not definitive on it but there there are theories that the 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 reason that we are attracted to cats is because because we have we've caught this thing and it's rewired our own brains (laughs) how else could you explain the fact that we have animals that we let into our house that we not only allow to crap everywhere but we pick (laughs) it up for them it is yeah there is something weird about it and something kind of historically accurate in this movie in that way because um you know uh i guess so Pope Gregory the Ninth was super like anti cat. Man, um, you did your research for this episode, Josh. <laughs> I just really, I th- I just find this really like super interesting, you know. So uh, because you know cats are associated with like witches and witchcraft and stuff like that too, you know. So I was just kind of curious about. That. They're, all, they're also the only domesticated animal not mentioned in the Bible. Oh wow! I did not know that. That's really 
Yeah, that's that's super interesting. So yeah, I mean, as far as we know, cats have been domesticated since you know, you know, for for super long time. Basically, as long as as long as humans have been storing any sort of grain, probably, um, you know, that would attract mice, which would attract cats, and so that you know, like that's that's kind of the theory. Um, and we know that they were worshipped in Egypt and all this sort of stuff. But then uh, they went super out of favor in Europe um, because of Pope Gregory the Ninth, um, who you know, basically <laughs> didn't want any cats to live. Um, and then, uh, but then by the 1800s, um, they're, they're starting to come back into fashion. And then that's when you start. So I, I, I think this is really interesting, you know, like it, uh, they basically came back to in fashion in France, um, among the artists first, you know, like they were kind of the first to start adopting cats back as their own. So then you have Madame who's living in France and she's an old elderly lady. So assumingly she's, you know, been having cats for, for most of her life and, um, and she's an artist and stuff. So I thought, I thought, I just thought that was really interesting. That is interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's this. This is also the time when, um, you know, the popularity of cats just, you know, skyrockets. You know, cute cats on greeting cards and and all this sort of stuff starts to starts to come into favor around that time. But I don't know. I wonder if it's, um, you know, because we all caught um, whatever this this uh, parasite, or if it's, you know, if if actually these movies that we're looking at have something to do with it too. Like what, like early animation is all anim anamorphized animals right and so cute cute mice and cute cats and cute dogs and all that sort of stuff is is you know from from the very beginnings of animation so i'm wondering if some of that also plays into like why it starts ending up on greeting cards and stuff yeah i know all these things feed each other so the 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 times start to change and that produces the animation and the animation continues to make the times change and yeah that's an interesting point yeah so all I can think of is that episode of The Simpsons where Homer runs for sanitation commissioner. Have you ever seen that? Uh, is it, uh, is that the one where he gets rid of all the snakes? No, no that's whacking one? day. No, this, he's, he's running for sanitation commissioner and his promise is that the garbage man is going to come into your house and actually do all the cleanup for you. And he says, <laughs> people, animals are crapping in our house and we're picking up after them. That's not America. That's not even Mexico. I think that's where we should go next after these. Uh, after we're done with all the Disney movies, is we should talk about a bunch of Simpsons episodes. Oh man! <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Anyway, we're a few years out from that, so. Um, but yeah, The Simpsons is so great. So. Um, well, that's the end of my research on this show. So if you if you have more topics you want to talk about, you're gonna have to lead the conversation here. No, and I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm being. I'm sure that this is just an unpleasant thing that I do that I that makes me angry. But I I can't I can't stand going to restaurants where people bring their dogs and they sit on the patio. I I just I, I think our society is too. It's it's kind of a bourgeois thing, right? I mean, there there are there are poor children who don't have enough food to eat, who don't have insurance, and there are companies that have mandatory pet insurance, and I just I just think that's so monstrous. Yeah, it's because we live at the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, is it like that in China? Are people are people like that with their pets? Um, so dogs are really status symbols here. Um, so, like, I mean, you want to show off your dog and stuff, and um, at least in the city. So, like in the countryside, you know, it's more 
it's more like what you would expect in an American countryside too. I think like I think the closer you kind of are to nature, the the less uh, what's what's sentimental so, no. you are about it, right? I think like, that's probably true. Yeah. So I mean, I think in the you know in the more rural areas, the you know dogs are are just you know wild and cats are wild and like you know maybe they live around the house and maybe they get fed and maybe they don't you know um but yeah definitely in the city among like the the young and upcoming they're they're more of a status symbol and they do all the you know like i mean it's 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 uh i don't want to sound super stereotypical about asian type stuff you know but like the they dress their dogs and they dye their hair and you know make them yeah I i don't know it's kind of it's kind of a thing here. It's weird. I did not know that was a stereotype about Asians and dogs. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it is or not. I mean, it's 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 hard for me when because I've lived here for as long as I have. Like, it's hard for me to know like what the outside perception of things is, you know. Sure. But yeah, the super super, you know, I don't know, like it's it's weird. It's like either little dogs that you make as cute as possible, um, you know, even with you know unnatural ways like dressing them in little tutus and stuff or huge dogs you know to show i guess i don't know you can you afford to feed of, them you yeah you can afford to feed them and and groom them and stuff so yeah but cats are not as popular here so but you have a cat i do have a cat yes so yeah but he was a a rescue, I guess. Like he was a he was a wildcat that we brought in. So, or whatever they're called, they're not called wildcats. What are feral? Domestic? Yeah, feral. He was a feral cat that we got as a kitten. So, and you have cats too. Yeah, we have two. They're very old. I've had them since college. Yeah. So. Just kind of sitting around waiting for them to die. They <laughs> cry all the time. They're unhappy. Yeah. They're old. Do you think you'll get more when you? Uh, no, when Victoria. Go? Victoria's put her foot down. I don't really want more cats. I I would like to get pigeons, but she said no pigeons either. <laughs> that is such a Michael Farmer thing to say. I would like to get pigeons. I, you know, like uh, they're cute. They're quiet. Yeah. You could put little pants on them so they don't crap all over your house. <laughs> but I mean, you again, know. again, talking about disordered, right? <laughs> I want pigeons so bad I'm willing to make them wear pants. I don't know. <laughs> pigeons are actually popular here too. Um, they don't take up much space, will, right? Right. Yeah. People have the um, like kind of the cages like on the you know everything here is apartments and so like they're like kind of on the outside of the apartment like on the window. Um, they'll have the the pigeon cage and then you'll see them like when they release them that they'll go you know flying in big circles. It's very uh, Bert and Ernie, right? Bert had the. That's right. Had the one of one of the many ways in which I resemble Bert. I have a unibrow. I collect paper clips. Now I can't tell if you're introducing yourself like the beginning of our shows or not. Everybody wants to be a cat because a cat's the only cat who knows where it's at. Tell me, everybody's picking up on that feline beat. Everything else is obsolete. Button shoes. A square with a horn makes you wish you weren't born. Every time he plays. But with a square in the act, you can set music back. Do the game and they I've heard. 
heard some corner birds who tried to sing. Bill the cat's the only cat who knows how to swing. Who wants to dick along her dick stuff like that? When everybody wants to be a cat, a square with a horn makes you wish you weren't born. Every time he plays. So one thing I found myself interested in is what all of this sounds like to humans who overhear it. So, so for example, in 101 Dalmatians, we get a scene where Pongo is trying to alert the what do they call it the the barking chain. Oh yeah, the um, oh what is it called? The midnight no. What's it called? I can't the remember. Twilight bark. Twilight, the Twilight bark. bark. That's right. And and so we we see it from the human perspective, and Pongo's just barking really loudly. We don't get that here, and we get cats doing a lot of weird stuff. So for example, when the cats have their um, piano lesson and they're all singing, if if I came into the house, would I just hear a bunch of cats like crying out? Or <laughs> the, when Uncle Waldo is drunk and his nieces walk him back to his hotel room or wherever, what, would I just hear? like furious goose honking or the 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 jazz cats i mean are they actually playing inst- how does that work uh I, I found myself wondering um what this world sounds like to human ears and i mean i think part of the issue there is that they the movie can't really decide how anthropomorphic to make the animals in, in 101 dalmatians they're not really that anthropomorphic they speak but they don't act like people they act mm-hmm. like dogs, whereas here they can't really decide whether the cats are cats or whether they're little people. Yeah, I think I think this is is very yeah related to your initial criticism of the movie that the the world just doesn't hold together, you know. Because at the end, the the lawyer seems to know that the cats are downstairs playing in their band, and she's you know that's that's her new foundation or whatever is all the stray cats. And Gosh, can you imagine what that house must smell like? <laughs> I mean, should have carpets, and maybe it's not so bad. But I mean, just <laughs> hundreds of cats peeing all over everything. Yeah, vomiting. <laughs> I mean, not to mention, I didn't see a litter box. Did you? Well, uh, cat litter wasn't invented until 1940. What did they do? Did they just let them go out? I, did, I think so. I think the yeah the the inside. The the one hundred percent inside cat is is a is a very modern phenomenon. By the so. way, public service announcement: if anybody has cats, uh, do keep them one hundred percent inside, not for their own good, but for the good of uh, migrating birds. Cats kill more than a billion uh, migrating birds every year. Or species that are disappearing, and I mean mostly because uh, we're destroying their their habitat, but also because people's people let their cats out and they kill a bunch of birds. There you go. And so at least, uh, at least, Madame is is being kind to the birds of Paris. That's right. Les oiseaux de Paris. <laughs> I, I I just uh, th- yeah, that ending is baffling to me. The idea that she would just bring in all these alley cats, but I, I mean, I'm I'm examining it too much. I get that. <laughs> it, the the actual ending of the movie is pretty cool too. The kind of psychedelic credits. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the best. One of the best things, I think. I mean, out of nowhere, right? And it has nothing to do with the time period of the that the movie is set in. But hey, <laughs> yeah. Once again, the movie doesn't really hold together, but there's 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 some nice moments. So, and it's the it's the reprise of the song, and the song the song is super catchy. So, 
And it's also the one the one part of the movie where Napoleon and Lafayette are funny to me when they're when they're trying to decide whether whether it's the end or not and the the words the end smack Napoleon in the head. <laughs> yeah. I'm the leader. I'll tell you when it's the end. I do uh, there's another Napoleon and Lafayette scene while, where they're like on top of each other <laughs> and uh um Napoleon steps on Lafayette's ear and Lafayette's like trying to like yank up and then he, he whacks uh whacks Napoleon and he says he tailgated me <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a good gag <laughs> it's a nice euphemism <laughs> there was one oh uh, one of the dogs yells shoot fire which is a pretty uh it's a pretty PG-13 gag for a Disney movie from 1970 Oh, I, I didn't catch that one. Well, you're not a native Southerner, so you you may not have heard the real expression I, that "shoot fire" is a euphemism for. Yeah, I'm not catching it, but you have to tell me off air so we can we can keep our well, uh, non explicit. Just just, just think about what the word "shoot" usually stands in for, and you'll you'll get it. Yeah. There's another euphemism, which is maybe the funniest thing in the whole movie for me, is when uh, O'Malley jumps on top of the the milk truck. And the oh yeah, and the, the driver yells "sacre bleu," but the, yeah. the driver also yells "sapristi," which there's a there's a French oath uh, "sacristi" with a with a c instead of a p that means mm-hmm. it's it's sacristy, so it's it's profaning something holy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and "sapristi" is like saying "gosh" instead of "god." <laughs> I had to look it up. I thought that was pretty funny. That is pretty funny. The movie, the movie, uh, the movie is a little. There you go. More... There is somebody with a French accent in this movie. That's true. The one, the one person. The <laughs> the the movie is is a little bit more adult than some of the other ones because there's also the scene, the weird interlude, and everybody wants to be a cat, where Duchess says, uh, "If you want to turn me on," and oh yeah, <laughs> it's like this I, weird I, sexual I'm interlude. I would have been so irritated if we got through this whole episode and not mentioned that because you're right. Like, oh yeah, it's super weird. I think I think maybe turn me on is like hipster slang from the 60s. It's not it's not supposed to be sexual, but um, I, I don't know, man. That that scene is weird and uncomfortable. What? Yeah. If you want I, to interest <laughs> me, I think is what it might mean. Yeah, maybe. It's it's weird though, because she's the one female, and all these guys, and I don't know. It's it's weird. Yeah, but yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's just if you want to interest me. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> What's the the There's the Beatles song too, where they they talk about turn me on. Turn me on, dead remember, man. Is that is that in Revolution number nine? Uh, maybe. No, there was another. It's not Revolution number nine. I mean, I think that is in there. You're right. But there's a there's another song where they actually sing it in the in the in the chorus and then i remember that um in in one beatles documentary thing that i saw at one point like paul and john were were kind of giggling with each other like that that they were getting away with this by putting that in there and i was like it seems so innocent in a way you know even if it does mean like you know some sort of sexual attraction like it it just compared to (laughs) compared to our modern explicit sort of way of speaking sometimes like turn turn me on just doesn't seem very very racy yeah it seems pretty light 
but it's really strange in this movie. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And well, in that scene, that that part of the song comes out of nowhere too. Yeah, and it's a completely not a completely different style, I guess, but sort of like she gets out the harp and like it slows way down and. Which, to be fair, is one instrument you can imagine a cat playing. Yeah, or maybe. Except that harp's all beat up, and like the strings are. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think you can play at a. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, you can play an out of tune piano, and it kind of can still. It has a, a kind of charming sound to it. But I feel like if you're missing strings on a harp, it's not going to happen that way. Once again, I would really like to know what all of this sounds like to a human being. <laughs> like just that, that enormous uh, crash when they fall through five or six floors. I just hope nobody else lived in that building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a good laugh for the kids, though. It's fun. And then they all go marching out into the street. It's got a very, uh, um, you know, John John Baptiste and Stay Human, the the house band for um, for Colbert. Oh, they they do that. You know, they they they'll play and then go out into the street and and do these marches around with the, with their instruments. I wonder if they were influenced by the Scat Cat band. I bet they must have been, for sure. It's very jazzy. Very, uh, I don't know. There's something cool about it, you know, like bringing the bringing the music to the to the to the people where they are, rather than making them come to you. It's very communal. I like it. I think probably more. He grew up in New Orleans, so probably more, um, you know, influenced by the the very public music down there. Sure. I mean, it is worth pointing out jazz is invented, um, both in new Orleans and in France. I mean, at the end of world war one, um, jazz really takes off in, in Paris. So this is a little early, but it's not as inappropriate as it was in the jungle book. Well, anything else to say about this movie? I think we've talked about it longer than I expected we would. <laughs> Definitely, I'm uh, I'm surprised at all the different places we went, but yeah, that's a, I I think that shows that we're getting good at this. <laughs> if you say so. Oh, I yeah, I don't know. I guess it's up to the fans. They'll have to tell us. Um, but yeah, I I I have nothing else to say about this movie. So. So we're talking okay. about Robin Hood next month. That would be fun. Everybody loves Robin Hood, right? Yes, I really like Robin Hood. And I have and, seen uh, that one recently, so I uh, I know that it still holds up. Yeah, and there's actually a uh, Christian Humanist episode on Robin Hood as well. Um, not just this Robin Hood, but you guys talked about uh, the Disney one and Errol two Flynn. others. I remember. The Errol Flynn one, Adventures of Robin Hood, and then the legendarily terrible uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which on a different episode I believe I, I call a turd wrapped in a wet blanket. <laughs> yeah right off the cuff you got a million of them i do what i can <laughs> yeah um yeah so that'll be a lot of fun so if you want to do a uh a, uh another podcast listen on robin hood you could listen to that one first and then then see how michael contradicts himself oh i'm sure i'm sure i do because i don't i don't <laughs> think anything out i just come on and talk <laughs> Yeah, um, but that is a oh man, it's it's a much better movie than than this one. So, looking forward to that. 
Well, Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for choosing us. We also want to encourage you to set your podcast players' dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. We're on the old interwebs with the most sporadic show notes of any podcast at beforetheywere.live. Uh, you can help us continue this conversation by finding us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. And for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh Altmanshofer saying aloha, auf Wiedersehen, bonsoir, sayonara, and all those goodbye things, baby. (laughs) 